Well, for the first time in a long time, guys, we are starting a brand new series today. I haven't said that since we opened this building. We're putting Acts on pause, picking Acts back up in January, and this month it's all about Advent. And the word Advent does not mean waiting on Christmas. It actually means arrival or beginning, and it marks the beginning of a new year on the church calendar. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist up until fourth grade, and then my parents were a part of this strange church plant at a hotel. They had guitars on stage, really weird at the time. Nobody did that. And so I, I kind of grew up in the contemporary non-denominational church world. So church calendar and spiritual disciplines and weekly communion was never on my radar as I was growing up in church. We would say words like Advent and Holy Week and Pentecost, but it wasn't really delved as deeply into the culture of the church as what I would have liked. So when I went to seminary and learned like, no, there's things that churches have been doing for 2000 years as a rhythm in their life and year together as a church that is really meaningful. It started to change the way I think about us coming together weekly. And so if you haven't noticed in the last couple of years at ACC, even though our style is very contemporary and I would say 2023, because we are a church in 2023 and we want to be in the moment that we're actually occupying we're trying to hold to some traditional things that we haven't before. Like we went from doing communion once every couple of months to almost every week. We started doing these out loud liturgies at the beginning of our gatherings. We started doing these moments of silence just to breathe in the gathering. So it's not just content, music, sermon, okay, go and move on with your week. But we want church to be a place where your soul feels natural rhythms and seasons. And that's why the church calendar was originally created with things like Pentecost and Lent and Holy Week and then Advent being the launching point of a brand new year. And so I kid you not, when I said, we, uh, we're gonna do an Advent series, I went to the creative team and we all laughed because I looked around the table and I was like, guys, we gotta figure out what Advent is. Because I, I think we think we know what it is, but I don't, think, I don't think we know how much we don't know. So I mean, we Googled. When did Advent begin and what are you supposed to do? Like, how do you celebrate this well? And I found out that there are some specific structures attached to Advent, getting your heart and mind ready for Christmas. And specifically, there's four Sundays that are marked off to cover four themes leading up to celebrating the birth of Jesus. And how fitting that this year, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, on the fourth Sunday as we get ready for it. And each one of those four themes are uh, up on the screen behind me and they are hope, peace, joy, and love. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks together is spend one week on each of those things like you're supposed to as an Orthodox Christian who believes the Bible following Jesus in 2023. Are y'all excited about Advent season at Auburn Community Church? I think this is going to be fun. Part one is going to be titled Waiting in Hope. We're going to talk about hope today. We're going to talk about the theme of waiting intense expectation for God to move. The word hope is littered all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, there's actually two Hebrew words that both mean hope in different ways. The first one, we're going to put it on the screen and I'll read it to you, is called yakal. Yakal. Can you look at somebody next to you without spitting on them and say yakal, yakal. Okay, very Hebrew of you. Okay, this means hope and waiting in like a passive sense. This is the word that's used to describe Noah when they're on the ark after it rains and they're just hanging out, 
waiting for the water to, to fall down, waiting for the day where, okay, hoping this is going to end and one day we will go. But it's kind of a, a sitting there just kind of, okay, I'm, I'm hopeful that something will change, but I'm stagnant in my waiting. The other word is called kava. Somebody say kava. Kava, Q-A-V-A-H. Now kava is waiting with tense expectation attached. It's the idea of like pulling a rope to a certain level of tension that it's about to break. And so hope biblically is the combination of this passive, what is happening, I don't see anything going on, but I just gotta sit here because I know things are gonna change. But also this tense expectation that no, I am leaning toward hope in a future that is better than the past with the desperate expectation that something is going to happen and something is going Going to happen soon. Now, at Christmas time, there's a typical way of talking about waiting in hope. It's easy. You talk about how the people of Israel were waiting for thousands of years for a Messiah that's promised over the course of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. And by the time he comes, he arrives when they're enslaved to the Romans at a time of oppression where they are desperately in need of hope. So they're waiting on hope. Jesus arrives Christmas season. Everybody's waiting on December 25th. We're getting excited about the special day. You can easily marry the theme of waiting on that and then waiting in the Old Testament and somehow apply it to your life about what you're waiting for. Great. That's a normal Christmas sermon about waiting in hope. But then we Googled Advent and I found out that that is not what you're supposed to do leading up to Christmas. I found out, and guys, I'm, I mean, I'm learning this. I'm just, I'm just Googling it and going, oh, wow, this is actually what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. I found out that the first two Sundays of Advent are not intended to be reflecting on Jesus being born 2,000 years ago as much as they are intended to look forward to his second advent when he splits the sky and comes riding on the clouds. To the hope that we are attaching ourselves to in 2023 is not just rooted in a story that we can look back on of God's faithfulness. It's actually God's faithfulness in that story that gives us full confidence that even when it looks like nothing is getting better and nothing is going the way that it should, he is going to come again. And all of our hope rests on that day and that happening. So we're talking about the second advent today and we're talking about how God's faithfulness in the manger promises a confidence for the future. Our creative team always hits home runs with the artwork that they make. But this, this is ridiculous. I, I told them this is what I was thinking. And you can see how on this side of the screen, there's so many themes of Israel and Old Testament promises. The scepter, you got the, 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 the tree, the picture of the, the, the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse. You've got the kingship of David. But then on this side, you have this amazing picture from the book of Revelation of what his second coming means. And I really want to marry these two ideas today and ask you at Christmas time, is your hope really rooted in the fact that just as Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he will come again and it will look totally different and all of your hope rests in that day? And usually when we talk about the second coming of Jesus, we get all confusing theologically. We get in these arguments about the thousand year reign and what's it going to look like and what's the church's role and what's Israel's role and how does this all, and then the symbols of revelation make it even more confusing for us to talk about it because apparently there's a dragon and you got all, and then, and then we go lie in the witch in the wardrobe and, and then left behind gets involved and everybody's confused and no one really, no, no, no one really is waking up every day going, all my hope rests in Jesus returning. We more so bring up Jesus's return when things go horrible in this world and we have nothing else to say. We go, come Lord Jesus. That makes no sense. 
Or, or, or we talk about it in such a flippant way. Like, it would be very rare for someone to say, Christmas is my yearly reminder that Jesus has come and will come again. Very rare for someone to go, Christmas is my yearly reminder that my hope does not rest and my circumstances getting better in this life, but in an eternal story that really will have a moment where my king is coming on the clouds and I know him personally. So that's the vision for today for us to set our sights on that day. And we're going to do it in an unlikely place. There's actually this moment in the most famous chapter ever written in the Bible where the apostle Paul looks forward to what's going to happen to creation and to us when Jesus comes back. And if you let this collide with your story today, I believe it can, it can affect your life in a powerful way. I know it's impacted me. Did you bring your Bible to the first Sunday of Advent? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Okay, you know, we've been in Acts. We're going to go one book later to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, guys. Try not to cheer. Romans chapter 8 is this glorious concoction of all of this truth about the spirit of God and freedom and we are more than conquerors and and God's will is going to prevail for those who love him and trust him. But there's this moment in Romans 8, we're gonna begin in verse 18, that usually when you're reading it, you kind of skip over it because it's about deep, intense suffering. It's kind of a buzzkill on Paul's hope party that he's in in Romans 8 where he's like, this is amazing. We've been given the spirit of God and we're no longer slaves to the flesh and now we're, we're united to Christ and this is absolutely incredible. But there's this moment where he acknowledges the reality of the situation that we're in and how much is going to change when Jesus does in fact return. And it's never fair to jump into a book like Romans and just grab a couple of verses. That's why the Romans wrote is a great thing to memorize, but Romans is this grand argument that Paul presents. And so whenever you do what I'm doing right now, I feel like I have to say this and go, when you study Romans, please study it deeply as the full presentation of the gospel that it really is, not just these individual cookie cutter truths. They're so beautiful when you see them in place. But Romans chapter eight, I think you can see this one well because it's surrounded by so much hope and so much life and so much freedom. Romans chapter eight, verse 18, if you're there, Say I'm there. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Stop right there. Common theme for Paul when he talks about suffering. He does this in Corinthians. He loves to remind people, whatever suffering or difficulty a Christian interacts with in this life will be eternally outweighed by the glory of heaven. For people who are in real situations of desperation today, I say this all the time, the eternal weight of glory will far outweigh the weight of your situation right now. You have to continually remind yourself of this if your hope really is for eternity and really is for heaven. I know it's hard and I know that life can absolutely knock you to your knees. But you hold on, if you are in Christ, you hold on to the promise that the eternal weight of the glory that will be yours will not only be better and heavier than what's on you right now, but it will make what you're carrying right now eternally worth it. You have to trust that if you're in pain. You have to trust that if you're suffering. And it's Paul's go-to comeback when he goes, you have present sufferings, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now he's gonna describe what that glory looks like. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So when Paul's fleshing out how our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed, he starts talking about creation, as in the physical universe that we exist in. He says, creation is waiting in eager expectation for a day to come because creation was subject to frustration. Pay attention to this. When Adam and Eve sinned, what's one of the first curses God called out? We love to talk about childbirth pains, which he's going to get into in one second, for the women, men working the land. I think we got the better end of that deal, honestly. But, 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 but if you look back in Genesis 3, one of God's first curses he calls out is on the land, physically. And Paul is saying creation was subjected to frustration when sin entered into the world. How many of you know that sin did not just impact the way humanity makes decisions and cause death to reign in our mortal bodies, but sin had a physical impact on the world that we live in all around us. And he's going, there's an eager expectation, a kavah, a tense hope that creation is waiting for and longing for the day the sons and daughters of God are fully redeemed and brought into glory. We're going to talk about that more in just one second, but keep going. Verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Y'all study this deeply. Paul says, we know because creation was subject to frustration, creation has been groaning with the pain of childbirth. Now, I've never felt that pain before, shockingly, but I have stood there three times as my wife experienced that pain. When you use the metaphor of a woman giving birth for the pain that you're describing, first of all, if you're a man using that metaphor, you better know what you're talking about and, go, and when you bring that up. But you are not talking about, oh, a fleeting moment of something that you would feel for a little while and it will all pass and this too will get better. No, we're talking about the most intense pain a human being can possibly feel, going back to the very curse that was given when Adam and Eve sinned. And Paul's going, physically, creation has been groaning with that level of pain, longing for the day everything will be fully redeemed. That is why every natural disaster that makes no sense actually does make sense biblically. This planet and this universe is not okay. God is holding everything together, but when you look at a planet where tsunamis rise up out of nowhere. In fact, I read this weekend about an earthquake that uh, hit over in the Philippines and they're all looking around expecting like some kind of massive tsunami is gonna pop up out of nowhere. And that hit me in a fresh way because recently Courtney, watched, Courtney and I watched a movie. I don't know how I missed this movie, but it was about the tsunami that hit in 2004 over in Thailand. And I, I don't know, maybe because we didn't have like social media back then, but I, I knew about that story, but didn't know that like hundreds of thousands of people died because this earthquake hit and then this tsunami rose up and people are like playing on the beach 
while one of the largest tsunamis to ever hit this continent hits. And you look at that and the natural response of humanity is always, where is God? And it's always, if there was a God, stuff like this wouldn't happen. But yet our Bible tells us that physically creation is groaning and going, it's not supposed to be this way. Something is still missing. This is why cancer exists. This is why viruses break out. This is, this is why physically in the world that we live in, there's this sense of man, as beautiful and as glorious as this all is, something is off here. And then he goes, okay, take that picture of physical groaning in creation. Now put it spiritually on the inside of a life of a believer. He says, in the same way, we who have the first fruits of the spirit also groan inwardly. Now, there's a lot of them in your Bible, but I would argue this is the number one passage you have in the Bible that is anti-prosperity gospel. This one right here. Because this passage is going, no, it's not that everything's chaotic out there, but the children of God are okay. If you're a son or you're a daughter in God's house, you've got his Holy Spirit, you're protected, you're covered, you're always going to get healed, you're always going to prosper, you're always going to have a future. No, Paul's saying, even though we have the first fruits of the spirit and all of those promises are fleshed out in full in Romans chapter eight. He goes, that does not mean you will not go through it. That does not mean you will not groan inwardly and go, something is off. Something is not okay. And if you're in a season where you are in a fresh way aware of that, I just want you to know scripture does not teach that something is off with you spiritually because you are suffering. If you are feeling that inner groan and longing of this is not as it should be, it is because you were made for another world and you were made to be made new. See, at the very beginning, Paul talked about, I consider that our present sufferings, that word present sufferings doesn't mean whatever you're going through right now. It means stuff that is happening in the world and in your life right now that will not happen after Jesus comes back. When Jesus returns, no more sickness, no more storms, no more death, no more chaos, no more wars, no more racism, no more betrayal, no more hurt, no more pain, all glory. And Paul says these present sufferings, they are a part of the body that you live in right now and the world that you live in right now that are both equally groaning and longing for something to happen. Now look up here and don't miss this. I want you to ask this question. What is that something? that is going to change the present sufferings and turn it into glory. What are we waiting in hope for? Here it is. It's Romans 8.21. We read it quickly earlier, but I want to hit this deeply right now. Paul said, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If I lost you at any point in this sermon, you need to come back right now and you need to look deeply at this verse right now. This is all waiting in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Keep this verse up here, guys, for just one second because I want our people to take this in as I'm saying what I'm about to say. This is one of the most clarifying verses in the whole Bible about heaven. Because we have this picture that when Jesus returns and humanity is rescued, that Jesus is going to return and take us with him to a place he has prepared for us. And we quote that verse because Jesus is preparing a place for us, no doubt. 
But biblically speaking, the return of Christ and the eternal existence of heaven is not Jesus coming to get us to take us to a glorious place. It's actually us welcoming Jesus to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, same place with new resurrected bodies. And this verse says that the glory of heaven is something that creation will be brought into, not something we will be brought into. Huge shift to think about. It's not, hey guys, come to this glorious place where everything is perfect. I've got it ready for you. Heaven and no more suffering and no more night. Here you go, enjoy. It's actually Jesus grabbing creation and taking creation to us. The glory of the what? What does it say? The children of God. Did you know that the glory of heaven is not the land and the oceans and the sun and the moon and the stars. The glory of heaven is you and me because we share in his glory. This is mind-blowing to think about because now you have been resurrected into unity with Jesus. And I'm not saying that heaven exists to bring you any glory whatsoever at all. Don't mistake my words. I'm saying that the weight of what we are carrying is we are fully made alive and living as we were created in unashamed, unadulterated communion with the only one who is worthy of glory. And he's so glorious that he has shared his glory with the sons and the daughters of God and said, I'm gonna shine light on you after all of this darkness and this life is going, this light is going to last for all of eternity. So much so that you don't even need light from the sun anymore because the light of the radiance of the glory of the sun will be all the light that they will ever need. My what are you saying? I am saying when Jesus returns, this is the culmination of everything you have ever desired or longed for or wanted. This is the end of suffering and night. And this is what we are waiting for in hope and expectation. And how you and I talk about Jesus returning shows how ignorant we really are about what scripture actually says. We only bring it up when something goes horrible. Or we make these statements like, well, I really hope he waits until I get to walk my kids down the aisle and I get to experience this. Or single people, I'm going to pick on you for a second. Our college students like, well, I really want to get married. I want to check the boxes on a few things in my career. Then he can come back. And Guys, even us just saying things like that shows how ignorant we are about what we're talking about. Do you know if you could taste for a split second what you are hoping for in Jesus' second advent, his arrival you would go, come Lord Jesus, right here, right now. I don't need another second of this fallen body and this fallen planet where evil reigns and resides. No, I want your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what God has purchased for you and the offer of heaven, yes, there's some amazing promises for this life and we live in those and we don't want to shortchange those. But at the same time, there is, there is always a ceiling on the level of glory and purpose and freedom that you and I long for this side of heaven. A kingdom has come, no doubt. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But there is a, a bridled glory, I would say, where God pulls back, where you can experience some glory, but it's like th there's a ceiling on it. 
of, ah, I just feel like it's supposed to be more. And, I, and when, when I say glory, I'm talking about a culmination of like physical creation glory, like, wow, that's beautiful. Or even things that we share with each other in our families and our love relationships or attending something like a World Cup soccer match. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is a whole country united in the glory of a sport. And, but, but everything we have to express the glory of our humanity and the glory of our existence has a ceiling attached to it until that ceiling is split and Jesus comes back. I'm trying to get you excited about what you should be excited about. Because as human beings, we attach our hope to these subconscious levels of arrival. That's what I would call them. Like subconsciously we go, I will finally arrive where I want to be in life when blank. And I don't know if that's a financial goal. I don't know if that's a relational goal. I don't know if that's a family thing. I don't know. But, but what you, you can do this your entire life. You realize that of just going, once I'm there and once it looks like that, finally my hopes will be realized. Not bad to have goals, not bad to have checkpoints in your life. At the same time, I would argue the scripture tells you, you need to have one arrival in your life with your eyes set on that moment. And it is not the arrival of when you get to a certain place in your life. It is the arrival of Jesus when he comes for his bride. And so how do we make sure, man, my hope is actually attached to that moment in a real practical way and not continually attaching my hopes to these arrival moments because I just gotta tell you this and I've seen a lot, like been married, have three little girls who I absolutely love. This church has been amazing. God has answered so many prayers in my life over 35 years. I can tell you, still, I've started to inwardly plan for the emptiness that I know will be there no matter what this side of heaven. I was meeting with somebody in our church recently, somebody who's actually in this gathering, by the way, I just noticed him a couple minutes ago and was just telling him like, he's asking me like, what, what, what is it like just watching God move in such a special and amazing way and this church and the stories of all that God has done. And I just kind of told him, I don't know if this like disappointed him or whatever. I was like, well, no matter what, I get in my car like 30 minutes after it's all over and it's real quiet. It's real empty. You can't attach your hope to what looks glorious in the eyes of man. Because no matter how awesome it is, there's always, even in the best marriages, even in the best jobs, even in the, be in the best outcomes, there's something about you that's like, is this really it? Is this really enough? This is, this is literally what Tom Brady said after winning his 8 millionth Super Bowl. He, he like, every year he would go, is this really like the, the top of what it means to be a human being? I'm just telling you, what would it look like for you to, to not become doom and gloom, I'm just gonna hate my life till Jesus comes back, no. But to really go, I'm not expecting this side of eternity to deliver a promise that the scripture has not made. The ultimate promise of God is to be fulfilled when Jesus doesn't arrive as an innocent baby who's laying in a manger, but arrives as the conquering king that he is and initiates his kingdom. And on that day, I wanna be found as one of those who are going, I banked all my hope. I banked everything I had on this actually being real and knowing you, and now here we go for all of eternity. Can we be that church, ACC? Can we be an eternity-minded church? How do we do that? I got two questions to get us there and then we're gonna take communion. I wanna, I wanna just, and these are pretty convicting, but I, I wanna take us there this Advent season. What ways are you actively participating in Jesus' second Advent? That's the first question. What ways are you actively participating in Jesus' second Advent? This is a, an interesting question because I think our waiting on Jesus to come back is both active and passive. Passive in that only the Father knows the day or the hour. 
So you hear people talking about and guessing, oh man, look what's happening in Israel. Clearly he's going to come back on this. Literally the, the Bible tells us like, don't try to guess the day. Don't try to know beyond the shadow of a doubt. He could come back tomorrow. He'd come back a million years from now. He's got his own timing and his own story that he's writing. So there is a passive element to waiting that's like, okay, I can't control that. But there is also an active element of hastening the return of Christ where your life is functionally pointed at the fact that you believe that moment's coming and you're banking all of your energy and resources and time and relationships in that direction. Most of us in this room are believers on paper, but functional atheists when it comes to the return of Christ. In that if, if Jesus came back, what about your life would only make sense in light of that reality? The vast majority of us, our lives would make perfect sense if that was never going to happen. Because we, we have organized everything to go a certain way according to a certain narrative. And whether he came back here or came back or didn't come back at all, wouldn't really change that much about what we're doing with our comforts, with our stuff, with our relationships, with everything God has called us to steward. I'm saying someone should be able to look at your life on a very cursory level and go, you clearly believe that someone's coming back one day. You clearly are engaged in a story that has a point where everything is going to change. And the Bible is not silent about this. The Bible calls believers to participate in the kingdom of God coming on planet earth. Can you think of anything you are living for right now that is of greater value than that? To hasten the return of Christ. It means every time you and I share Jesus, every time you and I give generously, every time you and I connect with God one-on-one -on -one in a relationship of loving union, we are participating in the only things that are going to endure and last for all of eternity. And so the question is so simple. Are you actively participating in God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it clear that you believe a day is coming and it is coming soon where he's coming back? And if you're convicted by that question, just know I'm convicted just saying it. If I look at my life at what I'm naturally tempted to make out of everything God has entrusted to me, it can so easily become about the 70, 80, hopefully, not maybe 90 year period to live on planet earth. But I just want to remind us, none of us are promised getting home today. And our hope has to become attached to, no, no, I'm not, I'm not hoping for a narrative that may or may not happen in this life. My hope is set on the end of the story I know, I don't know when it is, but I know how it ends. And if Jesus wins is the headline, why not go ahead and participate in that reality becoming real about the way you live and the way you talk and the way you walk and the way you give? He's won. He's got the throne and his kingdom is moving in and through my life. Second question, and this is it, just two questions. When Jesus splits the sky and returns, how will you respond? When Jesus splits the sky and returns, how will you respond? There's a uh, Christian answer to this song that was written by Mercy Me. It's called, well, I can only imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like. And we think about these heavenly realities and we go, I mean, I, I, I can't really say what it's going to be like, but I can imagine it in my head. Well, I want you to go there with me. Imagine what it is going to be like when Jesus splits the sky and returns for his bride. Even in this room right now, I want you to imagine if that happened in this moment right now. How really would you react? 
And how you would react has less to do with what you say you believe in this book and more about whether or not you have an intimate relationship with the one who's coming. Your, your reaction to that moment is gonna be directly related to whether or not you actually know him. Now, Elf is not my favorite Christmas movie of all time. I have a different one. Tyler talked about me earlier. My favorite Christmas song is Mariah Carey. All I want for Christmas is you. I know it's basic, but I love Mariah. She's a queen. And, um, but I like Elf, Elf's top five. This is maybe the most famous moment in that entire movie is when this Elf from the North Pole is working in a toy store in a mall and the announcement goes out that on the next day, Santa is coming. And his reaction, Will Ferrell's second to none, guys. His reaction of just, you know it, you've seen it. Santa! I know him! I know. What's happening in that moment? What's happening is someone who everybody else talks about and everybody else relates to and knows songs about, they're getting impacted by someone in the room who knows Santa personally. Because for him, it's different. He's like, I, I talk to Santa all the time. We have a relationship. He helped raise me. Like, he's like, I have an intimate knowledge of him. If he's coming here, I gotta get this place ready so that when he arrives and everybody else is like, dude, calm down. I, I, want, I know it's silly and I know it's Christmassy, but I wanna ask the simple question. When Jesus comes back for his bride, are you going to have that level of joy about the intimate knowledge you have about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who's coming for his bride? Because when he comes back, just for me personally, I'm not gonna be going, oh man, really wish I could have walked innocent down the aisle. And oh man, I really wanted to see all these things happen. I'm just telling you, given what I've experienced in this life, I'm gonna be going, I, I know him. I, I talk to him all the time. He brought me through seasons. I didn't think I was going to make it through. I talk about him to everyone. I know everybody knows he's the greatest passion and zeal of my life. And now he's here. And for all of eternity, I get to enjoy him. Oh my, do you know Jesus like that? That's the invitation of Christmas. God with us. So I'm not, I'm not trying to turn you into a theological mastermind about the end times by any means. I'm not trying to make you a, a, a crazy doomsday person who has a lot of canned food. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask you the question, like, do you, do you know Jesus deeply and intimately and personally? And is your entire life anchored to the reality? Oh man, he came. Out, out, out of nowhere 2,000 years ago. I mean, least likely time, according to the people's minds. We're hopeless, we're oppressed, we're enslaved. In the middle of the night, born of a virgin and placed in a manger. I wonder what the narrative is gonna be the second time. The world falling apart, threatening to destroy itself from the inside. Creation groaning with the pains of childbirth, the church looking like she is a thing of the past. And I just wonder if the birth pains are giving way to new life. And if, uh, if he is returning in our day, what an assignment for us to be found blameless. What an, what an assignment for us to be found praying not wasting our lives on ourselves. So let's get 
our sights set on him. If you don't know Jesus, it's a simple step to begin a relationship, just like you would begin any relationship. Tell him you want to know him. Tell him you believe he actually died and rose again. Tell him that you want him to prove himself to be real in your life. I promise he wants to be known by you. And get your elements out for communion at all of our locations. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand high. Someone from our team will come walking around and give you one. We've got communion stations throughout this room. If you're not a believer in Jesus, just wanna let you know about this. We, we celebrate this moment as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a picture of a meal where we remember the bread symbolizing his body broken for us. We remember the blood of the new covenant shed for us. And this is an opportunity to remember grace and set your sights on the promise of being brought into a relationship with the Son of God. Husbands, I want you to pray over your wives and really pray over this Christmas season that you in your marriage wouldn't miss it. That this Advent season would be marked by real hope, waiting on Jesus to return for his bride. Let's just set this time apart as holy. Our team's actually gonna come sing a song over y'all. And, and this is just for you to take communion while this song is on. Michael will say when he wants y'all to stand up and join him, but don't, don't rush into this moment. Let's reflect this Advent season. Get our hearts and minds in the right space. Just sit in this for a little while and then we'll come back and sing. Y'all are blessed to take communion right now.